Good morning and Merry Christmas, y'all. I want to share some things today about what we're celebrating that I think will help you celebrate more enthusiastically and more powerfully. And when I, when I was preparing for this message, I, I got a phrase that I, and it was just, I felt like that was going to be the topic that God wanted the title to be. His ultimate present is his presence. So his presence is his ultimate present. I, my earliest memory, my earliest Christmas memory, I was about 18 months old, I'm told. I believe that I remember this. I don't know if I remember it because I remember it or if it was told to me so many times. But my family, we went to the mall and we walk in and there's a, there's a Santa Claus display, an automated Santa Claus, and it's sitting there moving going, you know, ho, 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 whatever. And they were just sharing with me as a young child, just saying, hey, look, it's in this, in this cool. And what I did was I walked over to the fake snow and pulled it back and said, there, pointed to the electrical plug. That's how it works. And ever since then, I've always, that, that story speaks to me because that's been my whole life. I've always wanted to know how things work and I always want others to know the truth, have the opportunity to know the truth about how things work. Whether or not they accept it or reject it, that's on them. But I, when I look at the Christmas story, there's so much detail. There's so much depth. There's so much beauty. There's so many details that make it the most incredible story ever. And so Lena said, take as much time as I need. So we're going to spend the next five or six hours going through all those details. <laughs> Just kidding, not going to do that. Uh, but I will share some that I, I felt like the Lord put on my heart. This wasn't a Christmas memory, but the second memory that I had from an early childhood was being in my first grade class at a very conservative parochial school. I went to the office five times and got popped five times in first grade. But one of the times we were having class reading and everybody was taking turns reading and we were reading the text and and there was a picture of a man blowing out a candle, but the text said she blew out the candle. And I was like, <laughs> and I didn't get called on. She was ignoring me. And finally, I was like, okay, well, I got to tell the truth. No, it's, a, it's not a she, it's a he. And I got sent to the principal's office for disrupting class. But again, I've always had this desire to know how, what truth is and to share it with others. And my, my third earliest memory was the summer, I believe it was the summer after that year in school at, at uh, another private school daycare. And it was my first day on the playground and I, I broke a rule that I didn't know existed. And the teacher said, you get a demerit. And if you get three demerits, you get, I don't know what the punishment was, but I didn't want to get to three demerits. So I went and I asked, well, how do I get rid of the demerit? And then I got another demerit for asking how to get rid of the first demerit. And so that was my second experience with the system generally doesn't want to be disturbed. The status quo doesn't want to be questioned. So whether or not it was right for me to disrupt the class and whether or not the, the point is there's a little bit of inertia and resistance to whatever truth has to say. And what I'm struck by the stories in the Bible is whether it's the shepherds out in the fields or the wise men hundreds if not thousands of miles away or whether it was Mary and Joseph Every single person's story has a similar characteristic in that God did something and it changed the direction of people's lives. And they had a choice to make and it, it changed the status quo. So God's ultimate gift to us is his presence, P-R-E-S, 
C-E-N-C-E. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. Yes. But what's so awesome about Jesus' birth? What's so awesome about this story? We're going to start with Isaiah 7.14, and we're going to end with Isaiah 9. Isaiah 7.14 says, Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What's so big about that? Well, first off, a virgin having a baby is a pretty big scientific deal. That's not something that normally happens. That's strange. And like Lena described in her message, that can lead to a lot of problems, especially if you're the one carrying that baby. So it's, it's possible, and we often do miss what the big picture is because we miss a lot of the details. And if we don't miss them, we misinterpret them. So it's easy to miss and it's easy to, to be distracted by them. But just about every aspect of Christmas celebration is full of beautiful illustrations. Celebrating every year is not necessarily, is not participating in a pagan ritual. I read a, a paper from a, a, a rabbi, and I, don't, I didn't research him, but the guy was very educated in how he wrote. And, and he, made, he, he, he had a very detailed argument about how in the early days, before there was a mashup of, of or a, a sink, sinking up with, with pagan celebrations, that it was customary to celebrate the birth of a famous person nine months before their death. So if somebody had done a great thing and they were an awesome person of renown and they died in September, you would celebrate their birth going forward as having been in January. It was just a strange custom of the day. Another man that I really respected wrote a, a, a very convincing paper about why he believed that Jesus was conceived during the Christmas season and actually born around Rosh Hashanah, September, October time. We're not focused on the date, we're focused on the event. And that's what we're celebrating. The fact is, regardless of what day on the calendar he came, he came, and he came as a baby in a manger. So the story is so big and so intricate, it'll take you a lifetime to fully get all the details. And, and I'm gonna give you an example through the wise men in, in, in a moment. But let me ask you this, hasn't God always been with us? What's the big deal about God being with us? God with us. Isn't he everywhere? I mean, isn't by definition God? God is everywhere. And can he do whatever he wants to do? Well, no, the truth is for about 3,500 to 4,000 years, all of mankind was in darkness because of something that happened way back in history that we're going to take a look at in a moment. But because of that, God was not with us. And by, because of his mercy, he had to separate himself from us because if he didn't, if we were to be exposed to God in his fullness right now, we would be destroyed because we don't have redeemed bodies. That's part of what we're looking forward to. So we need to take a look at the Old Testament. Now, I want to take a moment and I want to say the Old Testament gets a bad rap because it sounds old. Old sounds outdated. Oh, that's, I don't need that. That's, I live in the New Testament, brother. A testament is a testimony of something that's true. So a better way to think of it is the original or the first testament. In the first testament, God is telling the story of who he is, how we came to be, how we were separated from him, how that affected us, and what he was going to do to rescue, restore, and redeem us. And he did that through building a people group called the Israelites, the Jewish people, and the nation of Israel. So he was building a people group. He was establishing a nation in a country so that he could bring a Savior through 
that lineage that would redeem the whole world. So if you're trying to bring a specific person into being and you're doing it through people and people reproduce, what happens when those people start disobeying and rebelling? What happens when they stop reproducing? Either because of perversion or because of sacrifice. That nation falls apart. I'm sharing that. I hope you can get where I'm going with that. Not to, not to be dogmatic about things, but on a very practical standpoint, part of the reason why it looks so harsh in the Old Testament about the reason why they were supposed to do and not do certain things is because of what God was ultimately doing for all of humanity. And he needed his people to obey his word so that he could accomplish his work. So another thing we need to know is the world is not the way that God originally created or intended it to be. Even though he knew it would happen, everything that you see in the world today, every bit of lack, every bit of pain, every bit of fear, every bit of destruction, that was not God's plan. That was something that came about as a result of Adam and Eve's decision. So let's go to Genesis. And I want to ask you a trivia question. Does anybody know what the first Christmas prophecy is in Scripture? Anybody feel confident with that one? No? Okay. It's Genesis 3.15. Let me tell you the backstory. Adam and Eve had just realized and come face to face with God after making a rebellious decision to follow the enemy. They, the, the whole scenario had started between an interaction with Satan, the adversary, and Eve, the woman. And it resulted in Adam making the final decision to follow suit. And it was, it was a cumulative rebellion against what God had said. And so God... Because he's not just creator, but he has to be Lord in order to have authority. He has to follow his word. He said that there was laws, and he said, if you do this, then this will happen. If you don't do this, this will happen. Because there's one thing that God cannot do, which is break his word. He had to pronounce judgment on sin. God is loving, but he is just at the same time. He can't sacrifice one for the other. So, when it came time to pronounce a curse on the enemy and to judgment on Satan, he said, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, if you were to get struck on the heel, is that a mortal wound? No. But if you get struck in the head, more than likely, that's going to be a mortal wound, right? So he was saying, you're going to be, you're going to cause trouble. You're going to be a pain in their side. But ultimately... The seed of the woman is going to bring your demise as your punishment for what you've done here today. Now, God is talking to a serpent, and it's real easy to look at things in the natural and just go, oh, well, that's just between, you know, humans and snakes. And No, there was a, there was a historical thing going on, and then there was a prophetic thing going on. And the reason why the serpent was doing what he was doing is because he was possessed by the spirit of Satan. So there are several things in that verse that will help you appreciate the Christmas story if you pay attention to them. The enemy had used a woman to attack mankind. God was going, it was going to be through a woman that God, who would say yes to him, whatever he says, do it, if you remember from Lena's sermon. 
that God would send the deliverer of mankind. God said that it would be a he. If you notice, there are two times in Scripture, recorded times, where all of the males were attacked and slaughtered. When Moses was in Egypt and then when Jesus was born in Jerusalem. Satan hates babies because they are a prophetic declaration of his defeat. Every child that's born, whether it's male or female, is a reminder of what was said in the garden. He hates males because of the role that was given to the Savior that was going to come. And so when he killed babies in Egypt, he was trying to stop God's word from coming forth. And when he killed all the males in Jerusalem, he was trying to stop God's word. From the very first mention in the garden, Satan hated the woman's seed. Seed is something, okay, the man's seed goes into the woman and it produces a child. The woman's seed, I never, I really did not understand the phraseology of what it meant by the woman's seed until I was uh, preparing for this message, but her seed was her children. It was the seed of woman, a child that was going to ultimately bring his demise one day. So every time a baby's born, it's like a replay of what God said. And there are more babies being born today than ever before. So you know it's got to drive Satan crazy. But every birth, every time a child is born, proclaims to Satan, your time is limited. And in other words, every successful delivery from the woman's womb declares his doom. So whenever, another thing that happened in the Old Testament um, after, after the garden was God said that he was going to establish his nation and his and his throne in Israel, in Jerusalem. So when Satan saw Israel reborn, not only was it a declaration that the God of the Bible is the one true God, because only God could say that that was going to happen and then make it happen. He's seeing God's word performed, which is reminding him, oh my gosh, I'm defeated. Whatever God states, Satan hates. God said Israel and Jerusalem would never be divided again. That alone infuriates him. God also said that Jerusalem would be the place that Messiah would return to rule. That's why there's such a war going on for Jerusalem right now and for Israel. Satan is trying to invalidate what God said was true, and he won't be able to do it. But now you, when, you see those, when you see those details, you can see why Satan seeks to destroy every life, either in the womb or after the womb, whether it's male or female, Satan wants to destroy. But he's always one step behind. It says in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 2.8, that none of the rulers of this age understood, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord. So Satan is not, the fact that he knew a Savior was coming, but he didn't know exactly when or where, shows that he's not all-powerful and all-knowing. Another example that we don't have to exalt him above who God is in our lives. We don't need to fear him. And if he could know everything that God was going to do, he would be able to stop it. That's part of the reason why God does things in our lives without revealing the full plan, because as soon as he reveals it to you, it's fair game for the enemy. So I don't believe in that, you know, God's never late. He's never early. He's always there. At the right. That's, that's a, you know, a cute way of saying the truth. There's a spiritual reality that God is operating in that I'm going to give you what you need when you need it so that I give you the best chance to protect and prohibit your enemy from taking it. Satan couldn't stop the Messiah from coming. But now he wants to just stop everything that the Messiah was coming for. Every successful birth is a reminder that he's a failure and a defeated foe. When he came, 
talking about the Messiah, how he came, where he came, every aspect and every detail were prophesied and fulfilled by himself. Again, something only a one true God could do. So let's go back to Genesis 1.14. Genesis 1.14 talks about the stars that are in the heavens. Then God said, let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days, and years. That word seasons is sacred times. There are things going on in the stars, and I've talked about this before. It's God's fingerprint. He is at work. He is stating who he is and what he's doing, even when we don't recognize. Okay, what does that have to do with the Christmas story? Well, another fun detail is that the wise men who showed up doesn't say that they were Jewish or Israelis. It says that they came from the east. More than likely, they came from Persia, which is Iran, which is where Daniel was in captive 500 years or so beforehand. And he was a wise man, and he taught the other wise men about how to observe the things of God. Non-Jews were paying attention to God's clues, looking for and waiting for the Messiah to show up. We talk about the star being visible and present. Why couldn't Herod see the star? I believe that when they arrived, God did something even more supernatural to let them know exactly where the house was. But if there was a star sitting over one house in Sugarland, we wouldn't have to go ask the mayor where it was. We would be able to go walk straight up to it. The point is, there were people who were paying attention to what God had said for hundreds of years, and they were looking for the Messiah, ready and awaiting and anticipating his return. But Jesus was born precisely when it was prophesied that he would be. And not everyone was looking because not everyone was trained and not everyone believed. The Jewish most educated people should have been the ones most excited and educated about where Messiah would be born. And all they were able to tell Herod when he... So, Herod decided to kill all the firstborn males that were two years, or all the males that were two years and younger. Why? Because the wise men showed up two years after it happened. They first saw the king's star signifying his birth two years ago, and they started journeying. That, that tells us that they were really far off. And that's the reason why Herod was like, I'm not taking any chances. He'd been born in the last two years. We got to get rid of all the males that, because he's a threat to my throne. Again, saying what God was going to do, revealing it and concealing it at exactly the same time is something that only God could do. The wise men were students of the signs in the heavens. And like I said, they were most likely trained and influenced by Daniel hundreds of years before. So now we're at Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. I'm going I'm, I'm to talk about those three things, but let me say something first about the New Testament. In the New Testament, God fulfills and honors his word from the First Testament. And he lives up to and completes everything that he proposed and promised to do in his First Testament. That's how we know he's a God of honor. He has integrity. Even when it's to his detriment, he fulfills his word. He had to honor his word and his own law and provide a solution within the framework that he had already established. In other words, his law. His first task was to establish a people, a nation, a territory that would be uniquely his own, through which he would provide and send a redeeming savior, 
a task so unique and so profound that when all the details were revealed, there would be no question or doubt that he was alone the one who did what he said he could do. What is the first verse that we learn as believers in the New Testament? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. Our giving of gifts is not because of a human practice. It has its origins and that true love gives. I love what John says that you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. And in John 15, 13, it says that there's no greater love than to lay your life down for another. And what did we see that Jesus did? He laid his life down. That's the ultimate act of love. That's the, and, and love demonstrates itself by giving. I thought it was, as I was preparing and I was meditating on this, something just struck me and I, it was, I felt the anointing so strong with such a precious revelation. If you heard Cammie's message a couple of weeks ago, that gifts are given and fruit is grown, but they're both gifts and fruit of the Spirit. They're only possible because he gave us his presence. Only because of what he did on the cross, which could only have been done if he was born, could he have given us his presence because the Spirit was given after he left physically. Love gives and lust takes. Jesus is the only begotten son of God. I was looking up the meaning of the word begotten because it's not a word that we use today. And it means the only one of his kind. Romans 8 and 9 says that we're sons of God, whether you're male or female, it's not a gender thing. But he is the only begotten son of God. He did something that only God could do which has become a man. Now, I know people who are on a journey of faith that are coming out of Jehovah's Witness and other things, and there are even people that don't claim to be Jehovah's Witness that that take offense to that statement. But let me ask you a question. I want you to think about this. Is it more possible for a man to become God? Man is limited. God is not limited. Or is it more possible for a God who has no limits to choose to limit himself and become a man? If you just think about it logically, there's only one of those two is logical. So he did something that only he could do. Again, all of this and all these stories, all these details, we see God doing things that only he could do, fulfilling his promises and prophecies that were uttered hundreds of years and thousands of years in advance. Only God could become a man. Only God could make such a detailed and complex plan. Only God could simultaneously conceal and reveal such a plan to the very ones that he was going to become like, come through, come for, and come to. Only God. Remember, God has to abide by his own law. Otherwise, he invalidates his own authority. The only way to have authority is to submit to authority. And God is the ultimate authority. So if he doesn't submit to his own word, then by default, he's immediately disqualified and Satan can take his throne. That's why Satan is continuously warring against the word of God to try to invalidate God's authority. So God's presence is displayed through his presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S. 
The gifts of the Spirit display that God's presence is with us. When we give tangible gifts, we are practicing and rehearsing in a small way, a rehearsal of what he did. And it's not about the present. I'm, you know, somebody asked me at lunch the other day, what did you, you know, what did you get your wife for Christmas? I said, nothing. We don't do that anymore. Our favorite thing, and I'm sorry if that's not your conviction, but our favorite thing to do is to spend time together and to have experiences. So we love eating and spending time together and spending time with our daughters as much as we can. But Satan became the god of this world at the same time in that garden. And it was a limited role. God said it would be limited. One of the things that struck me as so fascinating is that the very first test that that Jesus was presented with in the wilderness was making a choice to live by what God said before and above natural things. In other words, food. Because that's exactly the, the test that Eve failed. She didn't fail when she took the fruit. She failed when she entertained words that contradicted his words, and she didn't go to him and say, well, what do you say about these words, Lord? Because she could have given God a chance to speak and, and to educate her and to correct and protect her, and she could have said no. That truth of living by God's word alone and not bread or natural things was true back then, even before it was put into law and even before it was restated uh, by Jesus. In Psalms 107.20, it says that God sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. That I've been meditating on that verse a lot lately because if you are in the midst of a destructive situation or you're sick, just how is a word going to change all that? And then I was thinking about, okay, what does that mean, a word? Well, a word is a piece of information. It's, it's a communication. So it has to be sent. That means that the person's not there physically. That means it has to be received and then has to be interpreted and then has to be evaluated. Do I agree with this or not? Do I receive it or not? And then it has to be acted on. And... In John 1.1, we see that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the more you put all these scriptures together, layer upon layer, the one true story keeps coming forth, that God did what he alone could do. He sent himself to take our place, fulfilling that prophecy that the woman's seed, a son, a child, is going to be your demise. For unto us a child is born. A son is given. What does a son do? A son helps us understand who the father is. If Jesus had not been son to the father, he could not introduce us to the father. And our identity as co-heirs with him, with an inheritance, Not out of religion, not out of duty, not out of performance. And then the third part is my favorite part, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Now, I talk about that a lot, so I'm not going to talk about that here today. But if you miss the reason why something is done, you'll focus on all the steps that were taken 
up until then, which they're important, but not if you take them out of context and you over-elevate them. It's awesome that Jesus came as a baby, but he didn't come to earth just to become as a baby and be celebrated as a baby. He came to have legal jurisdiction undercover and to, do, and to undo the plans of the enemy. And he didn't just come to do that. He, came, he didn't just come to die on the cross and pay for our sins. He came to defeat death. And when he descended into hell during those three days, it wasn't so that he could be punished. He was already separated from the Father on the cross. That's punishment enough. When he, went, when he descended, it was to rub Satan's face in it. He got to tell him what a punk he was, and he was going to enjoy the next 2,000 years putting on display how defeated he was and calling as many people who would hear into his kingdom and into a relationship, a new identity, and Satan could do nothing to stop it. Just like he couldn't stop Jesus escaping Herod's plans two years after he was born. So the, the, the wise men were trained and they were observing dates. That's how they knew to look for when he was coming. The Jewish people should have known 30 years later when he was doing his ministry and going to the cross, they should have known that when he rode in on that donkey, that was a fulfillment of scripture and the Messiah was right before them. They had enough information to perceive dates. We are in a different season. We are not given dates, but we are told to observe seasons. And we can see that the season that we're in is very dark in many ways, but the more that the darkness grows, the more the light shines. And we are about to see the glory of the Lord in a way that the world has been dreaming of for all of eternity. So we give because he gave, and we love because he first loved us. We live because he died and rose again and now lives. And the only way that he could live like us and among us was to be born like us. But he didn't want to just be with us. He came to be in us. So Satan knew that fallen man could not come into God's presence. He knew that if they sinned in the garden, they would be separated. He knew that that would hurt God's heart. He didn't know that God had a plan to not just be with him, but to eventually come into them, that we would become the temples of his presence. We would get to enjoy intimate fellowship. We would be his dwelling place. So Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, is much more than a cute little celebration of a mild little baby. It is the fulfillment of the first Christmas prophecy that related to our salvation and our inheritance that was ever given. He was not just a child, he was a son. Sons have inheritance, they have identity, and they have intimacy with their father. And the government upon his shoulders, I know it's my little phrase, but I love to say it. It's not about us, but it's not without us. It's always been about his glory, his government, but that always results in and involves his goodness towards us. So as you celebrate Christmas this year, think about
these things and more and realize that no, no matter if we had 24 hours to study this line upon line, precept upon precept, and get into every aspect of the original language, we're going to be blown away by him for eternity. And the precious, awesome thing about a relationship with God is information does not precede intimacy. Intimacy precedes and facilitates information and revelation. We're going to always be learning about who he is for all of eternity. But the invitation is he came in the lowliest of all circumstances to the most unknown, uncelebrated, unrecognized place in the world. And the last thing I want to say about that is we can't get into it, but even the shepherds that the angels appeared to, they weren't just shepherds. There's shepherds all over the world, even to this day. The angels didn't show up to all shepherds. They showed up to shepherds who were in charge of a certain pasture that was responsible for, for raising specific sheep that were used in the temple for sacrifice. And the manger that he was laid in was actually the stall, the I, I can't remember all the details, but it was where they would prepare the lamb that was actually sacrificed. So God was walking through history saying, I'm going to do this with two hands tied behind my back, and I'm going to rub your face in it, Satan, and I alone am going to get the glory because I love all these people that I created. So if you haven't said yes to him, say yes to him in a new way. Stand to your feet. Let's celebrate Christmas. Father, we thank you that we can celebrate and sing the song, Go Tell It on the Mountain, in a new way because of the details and the beautiful information that's in your word. Thank you for thinking about us. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for knowing who each and every single one of us is, what moves us, what motivates us, what we care about, because you gave each of those things to each of us so that you could fulfill them and point us to you and let, you, let us see, help us see that you're, you and you alone are the only one who can fulfill us and give us what we truly look for, which is life. We thank you for stepping out of heaven. Man could not become God, but you chose to become man. And you chose to take our place. And we thank you for that, Lord. We receive freely by faith the gift of salvation and forgiveness of sins. We thank you for giving us your righteousness. We can put it on like a robe and come into your presence, not because of how good we are, but because of what you did and how good you are. And we thank you for the future redemption that we are looking forward to. It's going to be so awesome. And we're going to get to see you face to face. And we thank you that even until that day comes, Lord, we have your presence and your presence. And we receive them with joy and we worship you, Lord. To you alone be the glory forever and ever. Amen and amen.